Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers and anybody interested in the Hebrew Bible. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Our lectionary text this week is Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. And I'll jump into that right away. But first, let's let's take a moment and just draw our bodies and our minds and our hearts into this space and offer a little prayer. God, we're grateful for your word in the Bible, for the way that we are able to hear your voice speaking to us through it. Help us to recognize what you're up to and to have the courage to put it into practice. Help us to preach faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Uh, This text comes at nearly the very end of the big book of Isaiah. There's actually only one more chapter after this. And so these two chapters, 65 and 66, are meant to bring all the adventures and misadventures, the hopes and histories in Isaiah to their culmination in the saving and judging activity of God. As we've said before, uh, many contemporary scholars recognize chapters 56 through 66 of Isaiah as a third big section of the book, perhaps written by a third author, and maybe set in Judah after the return of the exile in the Persian era. So if you hear or read about these chapters as third Isaiah or Trito Isaiah, that's what's, that's what's going on. That's what's in mind there. This isn't universally accepted. Uh, Others are content to see this as the conclusion to the second part of the book, Deuteroisaiah, or Second Isaiah, which comes from a setting near the end of the exile, but still in Babylon. Which of those theories is correct doesn't make too much of a difference for how you interpret this week's text. But just know that the author of this material has the end of the exile in view, either just on the horizon or just in the rearview mirror, with a good deal of restorative work yet to do. In the nearer context, the previous chapter, chapter 64, ends with a series of longing questions, a call to God to get up and get to work on behalf of the people. Uh, 64.9 says, Don't be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and don't remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we're all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem is a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned by fire. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. After all this, will you restrain yourself, O Lord? Will you keep silent and punish us so severely? And then, following right after that, chapter 16, 65 and 66 are God's response. In fact, some scholars have drawn a connection between these chapters and the end of the book of Job, where you may recall God also pipes up and answers desperate questions with a majestic speech. While the first 16 verses of chapter 65 begin God's response, God will not keep silent, but will restore the people and the holy city, those who remain unfaithful, mixing worship of God with worship of other gods, will be rejected. But the faithful will be restored and have descendants in the land. And so our lectionary text, beginning in verse 17, picks up that thought and spins it out in cosmic language of a new or renewed heaven and earth. So let me throw in a couple Hebrew helps here. A key word in this section is the verb bara which is one of the Hebrew words for creating. 
and is the specific word that's used in Genesis 1. In this text, it's used three times, along with the words heaven and earth, hashemaim v'ha'aretz, which is meant to make us think of Genesis 1. What God plans to do here is so radically new that it rivals the creation of the world itself. New creation is marked by rejoicing, long life, healthy descendants, fruitful agricultural season after season, which was the hope in a subsistence agricultural economy. And this recreating is not envisioned as something that happens at the end of history. In this passage, it's happening right now. Here's another Hebrew help. The, the verse begins, Hine, behold, look, check it out. And then, Ani bore. Bore, this is the, the active participle form of bara, which, which has the sense of, of something happening right now. I am creating a new heaven and a new earth as we speak. And, and one more thing on this, in addition to heaven and earth, God says in verse 19, Hineni bore et Yerushalayim. Check me out. I'm creating Jerusalem. The renewal of Jerusalem is the focus of, of God's response to the prophetic cry in the previous chapter. We've emphasized in previous episodes the importance of place in the Hebrew Bible. And this is another example of how a particular geographic location is invested with sacred significance. Jerusalem is seen as the epicenter of God's creative redemption. I, I like that you said that because in other places, I'm thinking like Jeremiah, I'm thinking Ezekiel, Jerusalem is kind of the epicenter of all that is sinful and awful and horrible. Um, so I'm wondering if there's this layer here of not only the really sacred nature of Jerusalem as the epicenter of God's new creation, but almost this idea too, that God is going straight to the heart of where things are broken and that's where things are going to be new again. Do you hear that here as well? Yeah, absolutely. This is, this is the site of where things go wrong and where things need to get fixed. Mm, nice. So, you know, that makes me think, you know, by, by way of inserting a, a uh, preaching pitfall at this point, mm -hmm. uh, it's natural and probably just fine to interpret this text sort of spiritually and figuratively mm -hmm. to, to make connections between what God was up to in that place in Jerusalem for the returning exiles and, and what you as a preacher perceive God to be up to for your modern congregation. That's perfectly fine and natural, but just be careful. Don't totally discard the materiality of this text, the way that God's work finds expression in terra firma. Mm. Don't make this just about something internal and invisible. If anything, this text is making a claim that when God acts, it involves real people in real places. So when God acts in your congregation, how does that show up in changed circumstances on the ground, so to speak? Nice. The passage ends in verse 25 with a quotation of a part of the, uh, the earlier part of Isaiah, going back to <laughs> chapter 11, verses 6 through 7. It's sort of this picture of cosmic peace in which predator and prey lie down in peace together. This, this language of wolf and lamb and lion and ox, it's probably symbolic of predator and prey nations and empires. Rather than one nation gobbling up another, 
they'll live in harmonious peace. And this could very well have been inspired by the, the way that the author perceived the Persian imperial policy of giving sort of limited autonomy to conquered peoples. R rather than devouring them, the Persians made ways to, to live in relative peace together under the auspices of the empire. But what, what was present back there in chapter 11, but conspicuously missing in this quotation of it in chapter 65, is a Davidic king to rule over this idyllic situation. Instead, here, it's God alone who upholds this vision of peace. So a preaching angle. The part of this text that strikes me as a way into a sermon is the way that, um, that hopes that have often been tabled for someday get proclaimed here, purportedly from the mouth of God, is happening right now. So this isn't a passage about what God might do someday. It's about what God is up to even now. If we can hear this text continuing to speak to us and to our congregations, then how is God making a new heaven and a new earth right now? This passage envisions the, the end of infant mortality and premature death generally, conditions of human suffering that are often the outcomes of imbalanced and unjust social and political systems. Is God creatively challenging that kind of injustice right now? Are there ways that we can jump onto that project with God? This text envisions an end to perpetual international warfare and the devouring of enemies. How is God pursuing peace in our own time? How do we join with God in that work? The, the role of prophecy is often to recognize and name a reality that seems hidden at first glance. So this prophetic text calls us to shine a light on the creative work of God in a seemingly bleak world and to join ourselves to that work. So that's probably where I would take this text in a sermon. Nice. You know what I love about having this text in particular on Easter? I love it because in some ways it's a mini encapsulation of the Hebrew Bible, of the Old Testament, on a day when we lean so heavily towards the New Testament. Um, it, it talks about Genesis, or it references Genesis. It's happening at a moment when the exile is almost done or is completely over and the people are filled with hope. I mean, these are some of the most hopeful verses in the entire Bible, and we read them on this day that encapsulates hope for us as Christians. And I love that theme that can really just blossom on Easter Sunday this year. Yeah, and I would, you know, here's a challenge. How gutsy would it be for a preacher to preach this Old Testament text on Easter what? Sunday? <laughs> what? Yeah, I mean, it'd be incredible. And it, I think you're right. I think it would work great because it does. It's it's pulling from, in a way, Genesis to Revelation because, uh, again, Revelation picks up this language and uses it. So it's talking about the creation and what went wrong in creation. It's talking about a new creation. But importantly, the language here is in the present tense. So yeah. in the same way that we can talk about the resurrection of Jesus as something that has significance, not just for what will happen for us and for the world someday, but what does the resurrection of Jesus mean for right here and right now? Jesus is alive today. What does that mean for you and your church? Absolutely. He is risen. Indeed. Indeed.
<laughs> well, I think that's a perfect place to end. Thanks so much for that work. I, uh, I hope people take you up on your challenge. That would be awesome. To all you preachers and uh, lovers of the Hebrew Bible out there, thank you for listening as well. If you're hungry for more, head on over to our website, firstreadingpodcast.com, and you should find some great resources there. Until next week, thanks for listening and happy preaching. I should also say to fulfill all legal righteousness that some of our music this week is by Blue Dot Sessions. And hey, did you know that you can subscribe to the First Reading Podcast feed in Apple iTunes or in your Apple Podcast app? You could even leave us a few stars or a positive review. 